Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The mandatory guest pair today will hear from Tim Shorrock on the state of politics around the Korean Peninsula on the 70th anniversary of the armistice that ended a horrible war between North and South. And then we'll hear from the scientist-turned-law professor Christopher Morton on the intellectual property practices of the drug industry that make them lots of money while leaving millions sick and dead. Fifty years ago on Thursday, the UN, meaning the US, North Korea and China signed an agreement to end a three-year war that took something like three million lives, mostly in the north, and resulted in the destruction of most cities on both sides of the border. But a full peace treaty was never signed. China proposed one in 1954, but US Secretary of State John Foster Dulles refused. And South Korea refused even to sign the armistice, because then-President Syngman Rhee had been hoping for total victory over the north. Tensions between the two countries and the U.S. have ebbed and flowed over the decades. Right now, things are very tense, with the U.S. docking nuclear-armed submarines in South Korean ports for the first time since the 1980s. With more, here's journalist Tim Shorrock. Tim grew up in South Korea and Japan and has been writing about both countries and the surrounding region for over 40 years. You can find his work on his website, timshorrock.com. That's S-H-O-R-R-O-C-K. Tim Shorrock. Thursday marks the anniversary of something that most Americans don't give much thought to, the armistice that ended the Korean War. But that war never really ended officially, did it? The war ended with an armistice, just like World War I did. But unlike World War I, uh, there was no peace agreement or treaty afterwards. In 1954, there was a global conference on both Korea and Vietnam, but the Korean War was not settled at all, and it remained an armistice. There was never a treaty signed that would, you know, totally end the war. So basically, the two Koreas are still in a state of, technical state of war. And it's just that, the you know, the armistice silenced the guns, but it was temporary. And now that temporary peace is lasted, you know, for 70 years. But as I write in this piece, tensions are higher than they've ever been. And that was my next question. Uh, What are relations like between the two countries? Between South and North Korea, the relations are very bad, but it's mostly a standoff between the United States and North Korea. There was this flurry of negotiations in 2018, lasting until 2019, where Trump met directly with Kim Jong-un, the uh, chairman of the North Korea, as he's called, They made some preliminary agreements to continue to talk at their first meeting in Singapore and sort of laid out a framework for resolving some of the critical issues involving nuclearization and just ending the enmity between the U.S. and North Korea. But those talks collapsed in 2019 uh, at this meeting when Trump flew to Hanoi to meet with Kim Jong-un. And basically, there was an agreement on the table where the North Koreans were willing to shut down about 80% of their nuclear facilities. And in return, they wanted most of the sanctions imposed in the last five years to be lifted on North Korea and due largely to John Bolton, who was Trump's uh, national security advisor at the time. Trump walked away from that agreement. In my view, in the view of a lot of South Korean analysts, that was a colossal mistake one time when they could have really reached an agreement that might have ended this major conflict. But instead, after Biden came in, and then there was a new president elected in South Korea, Yoon, who is very right-wing, very conservative, very militaristic, they have completely abandoned the idea of engagement with the leadership of North Korea. And instead, they say that they're ready to talk only about nuclearization. There's no talks going on whatsoever around bringing peace to the land. Tensions have just kind of escalated out of control over the last couple of years. Tit for tat, military actions where the U.S. will bring in what they call strategic aircraft like B-52s and flyovers over the Korean skies. And then North Korea will test its ICBM rockets and missiles 
And then the U.S. will fly even more planes in, and then North Korea fires missiles again and just goes on and on and on. Now they're bringing in, the U.S. is bringing in for the first time since the early 80s, nuclear submarines. There's been two different nuclear, U.S. nuclear submarines have called in Korean ports over the last week. And this is very alarming because, like, the submarine that went to Pusan last week, it's armed with all kinds of nuclear warheads that could destroy North Korea in an instant. And so, you know, North Korea has responded to that, saying, you know, this might cause North Korea to think about using its own nuclear weapons. It's really a, really a dangerous situation. What's the point of having an armistice if there's never any kind of peace reached? What is Biden or whoever thinks of him? What are they up to? What are they trying to do with this escalation of tensions? Biden's national security people are basically the same people that ran Obama's shop in national security. Jake Sullivan worked for Obama. Secretary of State Tony Blinken was Obama's deputy national security advisor. The guy who uh, who's really running the show in terms of Korea and Japan policy is Kurt Campbell, who was also a key figure in Obama administration as Secretary of State for East Asia. And he's been the key figure in pushing this very hard line, very, you know, militaristic posture toward North Korea. Biden rejects the idea of high-level engagement. When he was in South Korea on his first trip as president, uh, he was asked by a reporter, what do you have to say to Kim Jong-un? And all he said was, hello. And then he went on to say, you know, that if they did anything on the nuclear side, North Korea would be eliminated. And so he's not interested in any kind of resolution to bring peace. He just he wants them to talk, but only if they will come into a talks where they're willing to give up all their nuclear weapons and all their deterrence, and then they can move on. The North Koreans just see no credibility in the U.S. offers because they say, They're going to keep their nuclear weapons, and that's the only thing they have to deter them from this very, very powerful military coalition that's aimed against them. You know, the U.S. military has dozens and dozens of bases in Japan, Okinawa, and South Korea, and of course in Guam that could obliterate North Korea, you know, in an hour. They see nuclear weapons, and they, in the past, when they've talked to American officials, the North Korean government officials have said, you know, look at what happened in Iraq and Libya. Gaddafi actually got rid of nuclear weapons, but they were attacked anyway by the U.S. and NATO. And, and that government was overthrown. And so, you know, North Korea, I mean, it's been fighting for its legitimacy as a state since basically 1945. They're not going to see their state overrun or blasted into oblivion by U.S. forces. So... They see nuclear weapons as their deterrence. Now, Americans like to laugh at North Korea for being paranoid. You know, we like to laugh at North Korea for lots of things. But one of the things we laugh at North Korea for is uh, being paranoid about being destroyed. And it's always important. Every time I talk to you, I have to bring this up because it's really important for Americans to remember what we did to that country 70 some years ago. It's funny because, you know, now there's all this, you know, Oppenheimer film is out and like people are talking about the atomic attacks on Japan. And a lot of Americans are now aware that 60 Japanese cities from Tokyo on down were completely destroyed by U.S. bombing. Five years later, the U.S. did the same thing to North Korea. Saturation, bombing, carpet bombing, napalm, fire bombing, villages, cities, the whole country was destroyed. About a third of the population of North Korea was killed by U.S. bombing like the bombing of Japan, this was aimed at civilians. I mean, they just wiped out entire cities and villages everywhere in North Korea. And this bombing went on and on and on. And, and you know, it's left this, you know, residue of hate and, and fear in North Korea. A lot of South Korean cities and towns were bombed by the U.S. too. The U.S. on several occasions even threatened atomic bombing of, of North Korea Eisenhower claimed the threat of use nuclear weapons drove them to the negotiating table at Panmunjom when they finally signed this armistice agreement in 1953. So what the U.S. did is it's getting to be better known in the U.S., but most people like write it off as North Korean propaganda. That kind of destruction will reinforce any country to defend themselves in the future. 
it's important for Americans to know that history. How does Japan fit into this picture? They're arming up, right? Japan, under the LDP, Liberal Democratic Party, which has you know, basically been in power since 1955, and under Abe, the prime minister who was assassinated a couple of years ago, and then the current prime minister, Kishida, they've been involved in a very big military buildup of their own. Under Abe, they loosened certain uh, laws they had to make it possible for Japanese forces to fight alongside U.S. forces. More recently, the Diet passed a law that allows Japan self-defense forces to attack an enemy base, what they call a counter-strike ability, to do that for the first time since 1945. So they now can actually attack an enemy base in North Korea or China under their legal system, and that wasn't true before. And so they've gradually become a more powerful military force. They're also doing, you know, massive increase in their in their military budgets. If those budgets, you know, go through as they say they will in the next couple of years, Japan will be the third largest military in the world after the U.S. and China. That's a powerful military. And now with this conservative President Yoon in South Korea and Biden and his Obama holdouts pressing for a closer relationship between South Korea and Japan. They're they're uniting in a military alliance. They're doing, you know, three-way trilateral military exercises. That's a new development that's hardly been explained to the American people. It's something that makes a lot of people in Korea very nervous. The way that they got to this agreement to sort of create this trilateral alliance was Prime Minister Yoon and Kishida, the Japanese prime minister, met in March. And uh, Yoon made these incredible concessions on, you know, the Korean claims about Koreans being used as forced labor during World War II. He let Japan off the hook. They agreed that Japanese corporations would not have to pay damages for using slave labor. Instead, Korea itself will pay for the damages. And so this resolved this this issue over the wartime exploitation of Koreans and made it possible for the two countries to to work together militarily. This diplomacy was praised to the skies by Biden himself, by Blinken, and they've reinforced it in the last couple of weeks by sending high-level officials to South Korea and Japan, basically patting them on the head for coming to this agreement and creating this three-way military alliance. I'm speaking with the journalist Tim Shurok. Before we started recording, you were saying that these two countries, Japan and South Korea, basically have no sovereignty. They're effectively under control of the U.S. Is that right? What I'm saying is that it's hard to call them sovereign. First of all, let's look at South Korea. In South Korea, since the Korean War, a U.S. general has been in charge of U.S. and Korean forces. The operational command structure was altered about 10 years ago. So a U.S. general is in charge of the Korean military during times of war. So now in peacetime, the South Korean army is controlled by a a Korean general. But in times of war, that'll revert to a U.S. commander. I don't know if any other country in the world has that kind of relationship with another country, another military. And in Japan, It's just astonishing the control that the U.S. has over Japanese skies. I mean, there's been stories in the Japanese newspapers over the last year about these low-level helicopter flights by U.S. Air Force uh, aircraft over Tokyo. No Japanese aircraft can fly over the city of Tokyo low like these American helicopters do. But they have control of Japanese airspace. And they can fly over Tokyo whenever they want. But Japanese aircraft cannot. The Japanese government under the LDP has just been the most subservient government to the United States for decades, going along with pretty much everything the U.S. does overseas. It's very difficult for me to call them a sovereign country when, you know, the U.S. controls their airspace. There's been a real problem in American bases, military bases in Japan and in Okinawa, the same as U.S. bases in the United States, where there's all this leaking of dangerous chemicals into the water. 
when there is a problem on U.S. bases in Japan, Japanese government officials cannot even go on to the U.S. bases to inspect water leaks or you know damaging like that. They're not allowed. It's just the U.S. decides for itself whether there was a leak or not. The U.S. has control, and it's very hard to call Japan sovereign when they're not even allowed onto the land that they've leased to the U.S. for military bases. How does China figure into this deepening military political alliance between the U.S., uh, South Korea, and Japan? Both sides of the political spectrum here in the U.S. basically are talking about a future war with China, and that's what we have to do. We have to prepare for that. Democrats are just as hawkish on China as Republicans are. That itself is quite dangerous. But this is the one area where U.S. interests in South Korean and Japanese interests kind of diverge because, you know, obviously South Korea is right there very close to China and uh, it has had extensive trade relations with China for many years and also huge investments in its semiconductor and other industries in China. And the same goes for Japan. So when the U.S. says we want your help, South Korea, and your help, Japan, in case there's a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, those countries, you know, South Korea and Japan, are reluctant to do that. And for good reason. They know it would draw them into a war that would hit their countries. A lot of people in Okinawa, where 70% of the American bases in Japan are concentrated, people there are really concerned about this buildup, military buildup against China and and then the Chinese military build up in response, and then you know these war games that are taking place, and they see if they're you know if the U.S. gets really aggressive with China and defending Taiwan, that they could be drawn into a war again. People in Okinawa, you know, memories are still pretty strong of the Battle of Okinawa, which was in the summer of 1945. They call it Hell on Earth. It just completely destroyed the the islands there. And they don't want to be drawn into another war. So there's these sort of restraints on both South Korea and Japanese military in terms of joining up with the U.S. against China. But overall, their militaries are very integrated with the U.S. military. And also, this is something that um, a lot of people don't know about, that Japan during the Korean War, was the base from which U.S. planes bombed North Korea. And a lot of the the bombers and even smaller aircraft flew from bases in Japan. The Japanese economy was completely revived during the Korean War by building weapons and sending jeeps to the U.S. forces in Korea. Japan has been integrated with U.S. military operations in Korea since the Korean War, all these 70 years. And it's over time, as it's uh, built up its own military, they've lifted barriers to fighting alongside U.S. forces gradually. And and there's been agreements all along the way uh, where they've done this. It's it's hardly noticed in the U.S., but, you know, people in Japan and Korea are very aware of this. So, you know, it's complicated, but the way things are moving is that the, the U.S. is really pushing for this link up between South Korea and Japan, U.S. militaries. And and I'll give you one example where, you know, it really pays off for the military industrial complex. Like one of the ways that they collaborate is with like, say, you know, missile defense, right? You know, working together to to stop or prevent a North Korean missile from hitting, you know, a base in Japan or Korea. They have these exercises and naval exercises. And all these ships are missile defense ships. They're all made by Lockheed. They're called Aegis class ships. And it's a huge market for Lockheed Martin. And, you know, all these weapon systems, it's much better for the U.S. companies that make these sophisticated weapon systems to sell to not only to the U.S., but to sell to South Korea and Japan the same kind of equipment. So it expands their market by quite a bit. You know, that's who really benefits from this military escalation is our much vaunted military industrial complex When Eisenhower was talking about the military-industrial complex in 1961, he was talking about this enormous military and corporate infrastructure that was built during the Korean War. The Korean War was the impetus for the military-industrial complex. Military budgets during that war quadrupled in the U.S. And, and that you know, the U.S. became like 
you know, the police of the world. That's where the CIA was on, you know, the CIA was unleashed to fight, you know, wars all over the world. And world's police force and the military industrial complex came together as a result of the U.S., massive U.S. intervention in the Korean War. How do Koreans feel about uh, this uh, deepening military relationship, political relationship with their former colonial masters, Japan? There's right-wing Koreans, there's left-wing Koreans, there's people in the middle, there's a lot of people. But for a lot of people, a tie-up with the Japanese military is just one step too far. The way that Yun has gone about it, President Yun, it's just people are really just, it sickens a lot of people there. You know, when I was there in April, I talked to a lot of people. I met up with people I'd known during the 80s, the democratic struggle in the 1980s. They were all really deeply concerned about the U.S. pushing uh, South Korea and Japan together. And uh, like this one guy who's a major activist during the 80s, he's still active now. He, he told me, you know, like anti-Americanism feeling in South Korea has really dropped in, in the last 10, 20 years, particularly as U.S. bases have been consolidated in this one massive U.S. base south of Seoul. But, you know, he said even though that Koreans are more approving of U.S. forces there, this pushing together of Japan and, and South Korea is bringing to the fore, you know, this resentment against American power and American pressure and could accelerate or build anti-American feeling there once again. And I think people are very concerned about being drawn into any kind of war that would involve Japanese forces on Korean land. That's not talked about very much, but if you really look deep into what U.S. officials say about the Japanese role, you'll find they contemplate, say, if there's a Korean War, another Korean War, and, and North Korea somehow collapses and there's you know anarchy in North Korea and U.S. and South Korea have to go into North Korea and, and bring, quote, stability. There's even talk of you know using Japanese forces to help do that. To me, that's just insane talk. And uh, a lot of Koreans don't want to have anything to do with that. It's a very tricky issue for the U.S., as I've been pointing out, like they say, you know, like Japan and South Korea coming together with the U.S. is this real new thing. It's they've been forced to do it because of the rise of China and, you know, the continued threats from North Korea. But actually, you know, the U.S. has been trying to get South Korea and Japan to join together as security allies uh, since really the 1940s, at least during, you know, some from the Vietnam War on. The U.S. has been trying to get the two countries closer together, and this has caused some real problems uh, within South Korea over the years. And I, I see the signs for the opposition uh, growing now. This part of the world, the U.S. is certainly inflaming tensions. We're seeing this in Europe, Ukraine, Russia, all this. The general posture of the Biden administration seems fairly bellicose, like they're really, you know, increasing the war fever, um, even relative to the Trump administration. Is that uh, a correct impression? Absolutely. You know, it's it's this uh, militant foreign policy with a smile. I mean, Biden is, has this appearance of, you know, friendly, non-bellicose appearance, right? But we're in a dangerous situation in Korea. And their refusal to engage with the top leadership of North Korea, I think is this, you know, really serious mistake. I mean, Trump made it all about himself as he does everything. But talking directly to the North Korean leadership is the only way you're going to resolve the situation and move towards some kind of normalization. That's just not part of the plan for Biden and his people. And I think that pushing this military alliance uh, structure is very dangerous, and they don't explain it well at all. Biden's always been a very hawkish on foreign policy. But his people, from Jake Sullivan on down, who's his national security advisor, Tony Blinken, and this guy Kurt Campbell, who's the so-called Asia czar, they came close to pushing the U.S. And, and North Korea to a war situation under Obama. You know, Trump once said, like when he met with Obama the first time, you know, Obama told him the most dangerous country in the world right now is North Korea. And at the time, that was true. And a lot of people scoffed at that, oh, Trump's just saying that. And, you know, 
Trump would say, like, you know, if Hillary Clinton became president in 2016, there, there, there would have been a war with North Korea. And I think that's very possible. I mean, I have articles in the nation from the 2016 election when I'm quoting Clinton's uh, foreign policy trust at the time. And they were talking about taking, you know, military strikes on North Korea, expanding sanctions, building up U.S., Japan, South Korean military aimed at North Korea. They were taking a very, very hawkish stance. It's very hard to understand, you know, Biden's policy, like who, who actually benefits from this. But most D.C. organizations, think tanks support this hawkish policy. I was Tim Sharrock, a journalist who's been covering the Koreas in the broader region for over four decades. His website is at timsharrock, S-H-O-R-R-O-C-K, dot com. He's got a new article on marking the 70th anniversary of the armistice on the site. But there's lots more, including a lot of in-depth reporting on U.S. intelligence activities since the beginning of the Cold War, as well as South Korean domestic politics. TimSharrock.com. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. This wicked world Searching for light In the darkness of its sound sea Oh yeah, I ask myself Is our hope gone? Is there only How some of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, the first of several versions of the Nick Lowe song, this recorded in 1974 by Brinsley Schwartz, a band for which Lowe sang and played the bass. The track sank with little trace, but then Elvis Costello made it famous four years later. Next, intellectual property, a deadly weapon of the pharmaceutical industry. My next guest, Christopher Morton, is an associate clinical professor of law at Columbia and a long-standing antagonist of the industry. I learned from him that a clinical professor teaches the practical aspects of lawyering along with the standard theory. He started out as a scientist, organic chemistry to be precise. When in graduate school at MIT, he watched as a friend's research, which was of great potential interest to the drug industry, was locked down by the university, which wanted to patent it. No papers about it, no conversation about it. That gagging contravenes the spirit of science, which is supposed to be about openness and the sharing of information, and Morton was scandalized. He ended up going to law school and becoming a prominent critic of the scandalous uses of intellectual property protections. Although IP is supposed to encourage innovation, this sort of enforced silence discourages it. Christopher Morton. Most drugs are developed using U.S. government subsidies, and then private companies profit from them. I mean, that's pretty much the model that uh, underlies the entire industry, isn't it? It is fair to say that's the model. There, there are differences. Each drug is different. And so you have some examples, um, like I've written a bit about the so-called Moderna COVID vaccine, which I think we really should see as the NIH Moderna vaccine. I think NIH and the U.S. government contributed more to that vaccine than Moderna did. Um, so that's sort of at one end of the spectrum where you have like most of the science contributed by public money and public science and most of the work done by public science at one end. And then at other ends, there are some drugs and vaccines and so on that are created primarily with private money and private effort. But even those, I think there was a recent study that showed that every single drug that was approved by the FDA between like 2010 and 2016 benefited to some extent from NIH funding, which is to say from public money. So yes, you're basically right that all of these companies benefit from public investment, um, and yet they end up privatizing the technology and keeping all the profits to themselves. A lot of these new drugs are often just tweaks and old ones that uh, are developed mainly for patent reasons. Isn't that the case? Yeah, I think I forget the fractions, but it is true that a lot of new drugs are incremental or even trivial improvements over older drugs. Some of them are probably worse than older drugs, both worse and much more expensive. And that trend has gotten worse. More and more energy in the pharmaceutical sector is concentrated on trivial incremental advances. And we're seeing fewer and fewer major breakthroughs. And, and then a disproportionate share of the major breakthroughs that we do get come from public science and public money. 
a shocking amount of the so-called innovation that comes out of the pharmaceutical industry is legal innovation, new gambits and new lobbying and, and new ways to capture value. So they have incredible legal innovators. They have some good scientific innovators too, but yeah. The case of Moderna is pretty egregious. This vaccine was developed in response to an extreme emergency. This is a company that had made no money at all for most of its history, and then suddenly they came into $20 billion in profits in 2021 and 2022. Tell us the story of how that uh, COVID vaccine was developed and how Moderna took advantage of it. Yeah, it's, it's a breathtaking story. It's, it's sort of breathtaking in its success. We created incredible, and I say we, it's sort of like we the people, the American public and, and other people around the world whose governments invested in mRNA research and COVID research and so on. The story of the NIH Moderna vaccine is an incredible success story in the sense that we have a safe and effective product and we got it in record time. As a sort of scientific and technological achievement, it's on the order of the moon landing. But it's also an incredible tragedy or an incredible failure in the sense that we let this company, Moderna, capture all the control, all the profits, all the value that we collectively created. So just as you said, Moderna was basically a startup when SARS-CoV-2 emerged. It had no commercial products. The company didn't really even know that its mRNA platform, so to speak, worked, that its products would work as vaccines or as therapeutics. It was a promising but unvalidated technology. Moderna struck gold in that it partnered with the U.S. government. It became part of Operation Warp Speed and became probably the closest collaborator with the U.S. government in the early days of Operation Warp Speed. There's a story about uh, Moderna's executives talking to a team of researchers at um, the NIH. Um, and there's researchers there who had been working with academic collaborators for years before SARS-CoV-2 emerged on the development of a vaccine, a kind of multi-purpose vaccine that would work against coronaviruses. This was done in the 2010s, and there was fear, in retrospect, really prescient fear within NIH that future outbreaks of coronaviruses could cause widespread disease and death. With a little bit of public money, like 10 or $20 million, um, NIH scientists and academic collaborators started doing work on coronavirus vaccine. And they had it perfected by, I think, the mid or late 2010s, and it was sitting on a shelf, basically, ready for an outbreak. And come... SARS-CoV-2, late 2019, early 2020, those NIH scientists reached out to Moderna and said, what if we tried implementing our technology into your mRNA platform? And actually the NIH technology, that same multi-purpose um, vaccine immunogen is what it's called, found its way into the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and into the J&J &J vaccine. So all of these vaccines that Americans took um, incorporate this publicly generated technology. That technology was created with public money it was invented by government and academic scientists, and it was basically given to Moderna. And the government gave even more to Moderna. The government not only gave Moderna the kind of secret ingredient for its vaccine, the government also gave Moderna ultimately billions, but um, hundreds of millions of dollars just in the form of clinical trial support. So the government ran all the clinical trials, designed the clinical trials for Moderna, paid for all of them. Again, Moderna had never done development on this scale. The government paid for a lot of Moderna's manufacturing even. There's a, a quote from Monsef Slaoui, who was the head of Operation Warp Speed, had been a Moderna board member, um, and then left Moderna, I think, to join Operation Warp Speed. He said something in 2021 to the effect of, we held Moderna by the hand on a daily basis. This was a company that did not know how to make drugs or vaccines. It hadn't done so before, but it had a kind of senior partner in the form of the U.S. government, helping with funding, helping with the science, helping with scale-up distribution, everything. We got there. We got a working vaccine at the end of it, which is terrific. But um, Moderna was a kind of untrustworthy partner and over time has gradually tried to shade uh, the story that it tells. I tell a story where the company and not the government was the central mover. I tell a story where Moderna deserves credit for the key scientific insights. I tells a story where public funding was less important than private funding from its early investors and so on. And most egregious in my mind, Moderna has tried to cut NIH out of shared control of the vaccine that they created together. So there's you know, stories in the New York Times, for example, about Moderna's lawyers and executives deciding to leave NIH inventors off of key patent applications that cover this vaccine. You know, if NIH inventors were on that patent, NIH would share control of the vaccine or at least some component of the vaccine and might have more of a say in deciding who makes the vaccine at what price. Where can we share vaccine technology with, with countries around the world? But Moderna's cut the government out. There are several dimensions of outrage here. One is the fact that basically the government 
paid Moderna's cost, and Moderna just earned all the profits from it. That's one dimension of outrage. But the other one is that if the government owned the patents for making this thing, they could have licensed it to you know generic makers in India or something like that and vaccinated the world with it, and that didn't happen. How did this come to be? In what possible way is this defensible? It's indefensible to have let so many people die. There's a study, forget the authors now, forgive me, but a study came out recently that 50% of deaths from COVID-19 in the global South and lower and middle income countries could have been averted if we had shared mRNA vaccine technology with those countries sooner. They were manufacturers in India and other countries, but we, we didn't share that knowledge. So yeah, indefe- indefensible ethically and morally, indefensible from a public health perspective, because we allowed the virus to spread further and wider, kill more people, but also you know we allowed more variants to emerge because of the wider spread. Um, and those variants, of course, come back and infect Americans. So, it's, it, you know, it's also unwise from a really selfish, nationalistic perspective, too, because Americans get hurt as long as this virus continues to circulate around the world. Um, how it happened, I think, you know, in part, it's that Operation Warp Speed was created under the Trump administration. And um, we had Alex Azar as secretary of HHS and a lot of other leaders in government who did not have the best values. I mean, Alex Azar was a pharma uh, executive before he uh, became secretary of HHS. We basically had an administration that was not um, predisposed to cut hard bargains with industry or to extract explicit commitments from companies like Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson and so on to share control or share knowledge or agree to fair prices into the future. The Trump administration had incredible leverage to extract those kinds of deals because we were dispersing absolutely unprecedented billions of dollars in public money to these companies. Operation Warp Speed was in the tens of billions of dollars overall. So we could have gotten all kinds of agreements or commitments to shared ownership of patents and so on. Um, the Trump administration didn't do it, and, and that's part of the tragedy. But you know, the Biden administration took power in January of 2021. They didn't have an opportunity to rewrite every contract. But they did have an opportunity to rewrite some of them and to use other kinds of legal authority to demand that companies like Moderna share knowledge, share doses of vaccine. Um, and a lot of the work that I did in Public Citizen and Prep for All, um, these are these are public interest organizations that I've worked with. A lot of what we did was sort of map the legal authorities that the Biden administration had, for example, the Defense Production Act, to um, demand that companies like Moderna act as better corporate citizens. Um, and so it's, it's deeply frustrating for me to see that the Biden administration really did not embrace any of those tools and sort of left power in the hands of of these companies. And now today, right, we have Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech basically in total control of mRNA manufacturing on commercial scale, at least. They and a handful of other companies that do mRNA research get to set the scientific agenda for the future. So they decide what disease areas are worth focusing on. And naturally, they focus on the disease areas where they can make the most money. They're not focusing on the diseases that pose the greatest threat to public health. One more thing I just want to say quickly is Operation Warp Speed made huge investments, not just in mRNA, but in other kinds of vaccine technology, like viral vector vaccine technology, which J&J used in its COVID vaccine. And, and J&J has cornered the market on um, in a way that Moderna and Pfizer sort of have for mRNA. So we made huge public investments and there were huge opportunities for at least shared control of the scientific agenda of pricing of access. But we missed those opportunities. This is a fresh chapter in the art of the deal. <laughs> I'm speaking with Christopher Morton, a law professor at Columbia. All right, let's uh, extend the tour of intellectual property outrages in this field. What about this technique called evergreening? What is that? It basically means, I'm trying to find the right adjective that's pejorative, but not libelous. or <laughs> <laughs> It's the sort of cunning legal and business strategy that the pharma and medical device and, and other industries use to obtain new patents or extend patent monopolies out into the future without doing much or any new science to kind of justify longer patent monopolies. So the basic idea of the patent system is uh, if you come up with a new invention, you get a new patent and that patent lasts about 20 years. Um, You get 20 years of exclusive control of that invention. And with exclusive control, you can set an arbitrarily high price and you can make a lot of profit and you can use that profit to recoup your past R&D expenses and to fund future R&D and the cycle of innovation continues. The story about intellectual property that the pharma, like pharma lobby likes to tell, or when pharma places an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal or whatever, they'll say that, like, we need patents to protect innovation from free riders, from early competitions, so that we recoup our R&D costs and continue to find new cures and so on. But evergreening is the practice of 
getting new patents without doing the new invention, the new innovation, or doing minimal new innovation. So sometimes people use the phrase evergreening to mean just doing the kind of trivial incremental improvement of old products, like coming up with a, a once a day version of a tablet rather than a twice a day, or taking a product that had previously been administered in a syringe and moving it to a pen. Sometimes um, improvements like that actually have real benefits for patients, and I don't mean to downplay that. But there are more egregious examples of drug companies changing the mechanism by which, for example, uh, an in insulin injector pen works, changing it from like a screw to, a, I don't know what, like a plunger or a clip or something. By making that tiny change, they'll get a new patent and that new patent lasts longer into the future. And they just keep doing this over and over until they get waves and waves of patents that extend out to eternity. Evergreening sometimes is used to describe that specific process of doing incremental innovation and getting new patents. Sometimes it's used even more broadly just to describe the process of the big incumbent pharma companies that dominate the market. They come up with different ways to protect their market power. So they sometimes it's doing this incremental invention. Sometimes it's extending the life of patents they already have. And that's what um, Gilead turns out to have done. There's a New York Times story over the weekends that found internal company documents where Gilead admits that it set out to do and actually then achieved uh, a so-called patent extension strategy to artificially extend the license patents. And sometimes these companies don't even use patents. They use legal rules at the FDA. Um, they use secrecy, refusal to share um, details in their manufacturing process. They use other anti-competitive tactics to keep competitors off the market. So I don't know if I actually answered the question, but evergreening is sort of all these things. Gilead seems to uh, be a, an interesting case study. <laughs> they have uh, several controversial uh, practices, don't they? Uh, they, they really do. I, I, I attempted to be a thorn in the side of Gilead for years now. I'm working with a patient group called Prep for All. Um, so it's an HIV AIDS advocacy group based in New York City. Just over and over again, Gilead has been remarkable in the schemes that its executives and lawyers have come up with to protect their profits, um, often at the expense of patients and public health. Gilead makes hepatitis C drugs. Um, these are drugs that cure hep C. Gilead actually did not do the original R&D. A different company did, and then Gilead bought the company. And when Gilead bought the company that had done the research, um, and that research, by the way, let me just say, the earlier company relied in part on public funding, as is almost always the case. Gilead bought the company and then decided to more than double the price that the, the absorbed company had planned to charge. And internal company documents showed that Gilead knew that the very high prices it planned to set for um, these hep C cures meant that some number of patients would go untreated. They knew that if they set prices lower, more people would get treated and the hep C epidemic would come under control faster. Uh, but Gilead chose to set prices high, knowing that it would mean fewer people get treated, knowing that the epidemic would um, last longer. Um, and it very literally put profits over public health in that choice. And I'm not making this up. This was literally the, the finding of a bipartisan Senate report from Grassley and Wyden a few years ago. Hep C, that's one example. But in HIV, they have also done all kinds of Machiavellian and I think profoundly unethical things to protect profits and uh, at the expense of everything else. So, yeah, just recently, the New York Times did a story over the weekend that highlighted internal Gilead company documents that have been unearthed via litigation against the company. And those documents confirm that Gilead chose to delay development of an HIV drug that probably offers um, important safety benefits to a small but significant number of HIV positive people. And the company almost certainly knew that the drug had those safety benefits, but the company decided to delay development of that compound to extend its patent monopoly and make more money. And a study funded by Gilead itself estimated that it's possible that over 10,000 people died as a result of um, them not having access to this newer drug and um, instead having to use an older but similar version of the drug. All this is the subject of ongoing litigation. And all this is, is work that I was involved with actually with Prep for All back in 2019 and 2020 pieced together what Gilead had done. We didn't have the kind of smoking gun internal company documents that laid out what the company was planning and that actually used the phrase patent extension strategy. That's Gilead's term, not mine. But we had other evidence. We filed a petition at the patent office back in 2019, trying to bring this to the attention of the patent office and, and asking the, the patent office not to grant the extension that Gilead sought. But we were unsuccessful. The patent office denied Prep for All's petition, basically on the ground that third-party patient groups like Prep for All 
uh, are not supposed to interfere with the workings of the patent office and that this is a complex technical decision that the agency can handle on its own. And the final area I'd like to look at is secrecy at the FDA. Uh, They have an enormous trove of information about drug development, both clinical information but also financial information, which is undisclosed. We could uh, have better and cheaper drugs if the FDA would uh, lift the veil. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's that's right. I'm gonna I'm gonna lump FDA and NIH in together on that. NIH has much more financial data than FDA. Uh, certainly, FDA has tons and tons of scientific data, safety and efficacy data that I think should be disclosed. Um, NIH has scientific data and it has financial data in the sense that NIH has information about what it costs to run clinical trials to do basic research. NIH can kind of see under the hood of the pharmaceutical industry, and it does. Um, It's a partner with these companies. It's a partner with academic labs that do research, and it does lots of tremendous um, research in its own facilities in Bethesda and elsewhere. Yeah, unfortunately, we have right now, I think, an unnecessary culture of data secrecy at at the FDA and at NIH, that there's reservoirs of really useful information about how well drugs and vaccines and medical devices work, whether they're worth what we pay for them, um, whether they're serving all patients well. And these agencies have not shared enough of this data. And a lot of what I've written with Amy Kaczynski at Yale and, and worked with Doctors Without Borders on um, in various ways is, is to try to, to fight this culture of data secrecy and show that they can legally and practically share more. The FDA has been approving some extremely expensive drugs of uh, doubtful efficacy of late too, right? There's the um, Alzheimer's drug and earlier a muscular dystrophy drug. What's going on with that? Do we have any idea what's behind this? It's a long story. And like, it's, I think a mix of factors. I think, unfortunately, a lot of things are coming to head in this sort of moment of high, late capitalism that we have a Congress that has for decades now, but under both Republican and Democratic administrations, encouraged or even required the FDA to approve products on smaller evidence bases and to approve products faster. I, I hate to use the word trade-offs, but there are some trade-offs here, right, that we want the FDA to let products get to patients quickly. We don't want patients to wait and die for, for cures, for treatments. But there's also clearly downsides to rushing products through the FDA approval process. The FDA can make mistakes or it can let products onto the market before they've really proven their safety, their efficacy, their value. The trend has been to tip the balance too much towards speed and so-called patient access. And one of the things that's happened here is that the pharmaceutical industry has lobbied Congress to try to erode regulatory standards, but also the pharmaceutical industry has funded a lot of patient groups. You know, I don't blame patients who want access to treatments and cures, um, but patient groups, I think, have been weaponized as a tool by a lot of big companies to kind of layer on pressure on the agencies to get products approved faster. And so the result, for example, you mentioned Alzheimer's, right? We had um, the Biogen Alzheimer's drug that was approved without any real evidence of therapeutic benefit. No trial showed that uh, this drug actually helps Alzheimer's patients, um, but the FDA decided to approve it anyway. Yes, partly the state of the law. It's also, I think, a kind of crisis of leadership at the FDA that um, the FDA is not sufficiently attuned to um, these scientific questions and these problems with public spending, right? The FDA, I think, has willfully blinded itself to the cost of medicines. It'll say, like, we're not a um, price control agency. But I think the agency um, should take a harder look at its role in letting these very expensive products of dubious value onto the market. The whole um, secrecy issue, uh, we touched on this a little earlier, but let's uh, close on this note. The secrecy is defended as a way to encourage innovation. Intellectual property generally is, is defended as a way to encourage innovation. Does that claim hold water? I don't think it does, or at least um, it certainly does not um, hold water given the present day state of secrecy. Um, secrecy has sort of crept over so much of what agencies, regulators do, um, over what these companies do. Uh, these companies claim secrecy in all kinds of information now. Stepping back from just pharma, you see um, tech companies, you see companies claiming, for example, data on the diversity of their employees, demographic diversity data. They'll claim that that is a trade secret. It's not a trade secret. It's actually just important information that like regulators and the public might want to know. But trade secrecy law, too, has been the subject of lobbying and has kind of um, gradually expanded to permit companies to claim trade secret rights in a lot of information that really has tangential, if any, connection with the underlying business of um, the company. Trade secrets were originally designed to protect manufacturing processes. But the law has changed and the kind of norms have changed. And so now we have claims of trade secrecy and all kinds of new information. And to your point, it's just 
absolutely not the case that we need this level of secrecy to protect innovation. I think it's actually precisely the opposite, that when we keep secret information about the safety and efficacy of drugs, rather than share that information with patients and with scientists and with regulators and and cost-effectiveness researchers, we all suffer because we pay for bad drugs and we incentivize the creation of bad drugs because companies trust that they can get people to pay for them. If we had data transparency, if we had better access to this information, we could make better decisions. We would we would sort of realign incentives a little bit and we'd get companies working harder on making better drugs. We'd accelerate research itself. I also have fought for a few years now over the secrecy that these companies claim in financial information. They just don't really disclose what they spend on research, on clinical trials, on bench research, on other things. They'll say at a high level, it costs us a huge amount of money, they'll say it costs two and a half billion dollars or even more to invent a new drug. But they make those claims to support the outrageous prices that they charge. The numbers that underlie those huge estimates of like two and a half billion dollars per drug, those numbers are industry supplied numbers and they're not made public. There's like a group at Tufts that does this regular analysis of what it costs to develop a drug, but that group is funded by industry and it uses pharma industry supplied numbers and it doesn't show its work. So we have a kind of vacuum of information and in that vacuum, the pharma companies can claim absurd amounts. And it really matters because it's hard to have a fight over what a fair price for a drug is until you know what it costs to make the drug and what it costs to develop the drug. And I think we need to keep fighting for that information so we can have a better policy debate. And so for me, I mean, as as someone who has anti-capitalist politics, I think now is a moment where a few states have started looking at public ownership of pharma. Um, California, for example, has a CalRx initiative to make insulin in the public sector, make naloxone and potentially other drugs too. I think that's terrific and I'd love to see more of that. But, you know, as states and other governments start thinking about making meds, you need to know, well, what does it cost to do the research? What does it cost to to do the manufacturing, the distribution? So we need the data from the industry and from the government agencies that are part of this to see those policy um, initiatives take root and thrive. That was Christopher Morton, who teaches at Columbia Law School and is director of Columbia's Science, Health and Information Clinic. His website is Chris Morton. That's M-O-R-T-E-N dot com. ChrisMorton.com. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of St. Vincent's pills. Till next week, bye. Pills to wake, pills to sleep, pills, pills, pills every day of the week. Pills to walk, pills to think, pills, pills, pills for the family. I spent a year suspended in air, my mind on the gap, my head on the stairs, from healer to dealers and